what I what I have planned for in this series of lessons as we're getting into chapter 2 in Galatians is that I have about five messages, well, so far to begin these first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. And then while we're in the process of that, what I plan to do is do an excursus on uh, Acts chapter 15, and you'll understand a little bit better why we're going to do that later on. So uh, this, the, this, these first 10 verses are going to take us quite a while to get through, but I think that they are important for us. So I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2, and we're in some uh, still very familiar territory here. We've spent several weeks in the first chapter talking about Paul's defense of his apostleship, and uh, that is the subject of the first two chapters that we have in Galatians. And and it's very important that uh, we see this because this establishes Paul's right to preach a gospel that is opposed to the Jewish system of, of works, And uh, this is uh, telling us about how that Paul gets the authority to preach what he preaches. Galatians is easily divided into two sections, rather three sections of two chapters each. Chapters 1 and 2 concern the vindication of Paul's apostleship. Chapters 3 and 4 are an explanation of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that, of course, is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. And then chapters 5 and 6 are the practical implications that flow out of that doctrine. Now, the last two parts of that, those are very common for Paul. In his letters, you'll, you'll see this where there is a statement of doctrine, and then he follows that up with the practical application of the doctrine. And we also see what he does this first, in the first part, which is to um, talk about his apostleship. But as we've looked at this first chapter, we've noticed that of all the writings of Paul, he does more in that area, defending his apostleship, than he does in any other letters that he wrote. And uh, we we see how he just jumps into the subject right away because he has these people that are opposing him and telling him that he's not an apostle and that he is preaching a false doctrine. And so what we have is a very carefully laid-out approach which Paul uses to prove that he got his revelation from God. Now, in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he said, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which is preached of me is not after man, for neither I received it or neither received it of man, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on from there to prove that uh, his life before his conversion the miraculous act of his conversion, then activities after he was converted, proved that he could not have received the gospel any other way except by divine revelation. Now, before we go into this text and start to read that, I want to give you the first point of your outline tonight. And and this is the uh, all introductory material. And we want to talk about the core issue. The core issue. Now, beginning in the second chapter, Again, we're in same territory as we were in the first chapter. And this is one of those places where the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, that's the the person who divided the Bible into chapters, which is in 1227 A.D., he didn't do us any favors when when he came to this part of Scripture because there really shouldn't be a chapter division where we have it here between 1 and 2 because Paul is still on this same subject, and that's talking about his apostleship and trying to, to show us that, that he is a chosen apostle of God. And maybe some of you aren't too interested in this part. I mean, uh, 
It gives us an opportunity to discover how the events of Paul's life are interconnected with his doctrine. We'll see how that Galatians fits in with uh, Paul's missionary journeys and how that fits into Acts. And we'll see this visit that he makes to the apostles in Jerusalem. And I don't know if that interests you or not, but I think it's important for us to understand. And it shows us how the Bible fits together. Now, Acts chapter 15 is the historical background for Galatians chapter 2. And if you're not crazy about this part and you're wild about doctrine and you say, well, let's get to the doctrine. I mean, after all, we've really got to get to the doctrinal part because justification by faith alone, we need to know about that. That's the cardinal doctrine of our faith. That undergirds our faith. Well, this is also important. It's critical that we understand where the authority comes from for things that are said in the Bible. And authority is as important as doctrine. Because if the doctrine is invented by men, and if the authority is not right, then there's no reason to believe the doctrine. You have to have authority for it. And this is the charge that's made against Paul. You have no authority. And people were saying that his authority didn't go high enough. They didn't think it went any higher than his head. But Paul wants to show him he got his authority from God. Now, an example of this is why we need authority so badly. Let's just think for just a moment about the Mormons. Um, The Mormons, as you know, got started by Joseph Smith. And he claimed that he found some golden plates in Palmyra, New York. And and, uh, these plates were hidden, and uh, there was an angel that... that showed him and revealed this to him and handed him the plates and Joseph Smith took those and he translated them with a special seer stone and if you're interested in what's on those plates he said it was about a civilization in North America around 400 AD so he supposedly translated these plates and they were some kind of a hieroglyphic or something that only the seer stone could show him uh, what was actually on them and so he translated it out of that came the book of Mormon and then Joseph Smith handed the plates back to the angel and nobody's seen them since so that's kind of a problem I think Um, how do we prove, or how does Joseph Smith or how do Mormons prove that they have any basis for what they believe because there is no corroborating evidence? Now, Joseph Smith supposedly made a few copies of part of those plates, but nobody's been able to figure it out and and never been able to uh, substantiate what he said. But you take that and you compare it to the Bible. And what do we have with the Bible? Well, we have thousands of manuscripts and some of those date all the way back to the first century and you have all of these manuscripts you have all this evidence in fact there's more evidence for the for the authenticity and the veracity of the bible than there is any other book of antiquity there's all of these things that we have that support what the bible says we have all the manuscripts and so the authority has been established by all of that well joseph smith again he doesn't have anything but his word he claimed that he was showed these plates, and he showed, said that he showed them to about 10 of his friends, but they couldn't verify what he said. So that's a real problem. You have to have an authority. There's no reason to believe Paul. There's no reason to believe anything he says unless you could establish the authority. Well, why is it so important that we trust him? We're staking our eternal life on it, aren't we? What if he's wrong? about justification by faith alone. He says 
All that you need to do to be justified before God is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and do that alone. Plus or minus nothing. That's what it takes to be justified with God. What if he's wrong? Well, it means we haven't done enough. I mean, we're, we're lacking something yet, so we're staking our lives, our eternal life, on the fact that Paul is right. So we better be sure that he has the authority. So that makes this part of Galatians critical to us. If Paul's gospel is not God's gospel, then it is a false gospel. Now, let's look at Galatians chapter 2. We'll start here with verse number 1. We'll read these 10 verses, and this might be confusing to you. And I'm sure that some of it will be, what is he saying here? And we're going to decipher all of this in the next few weeks. He says in verse number 1, Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of those who seemed to be somewhat... Whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrary wise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived that, that uh, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. I said some of that's a little bit hard to explain, trying to see where Paul's going with that. Um, you have all these parenthetical phrases that are in there, interruptions of thought that are there, so we have to figure that all out as we go along. Now, in chapter 1, we go back to that, and we think for just a moment that how Paul proved, or he set out to prove that there was no one that taught him his doctrine. And he did that by showing there was a lack of contact with anyone. Nobody was around him. Nobody could have given him the details of the faith. In Acts chapter 18, you you may remember this story, there is a gifted orator there by the name of Apollos, and he came to Ephesus, and he was preaching, and he hadn't really received anything more than just the baptism of John and what John taught, and so he wasn't fully aware of of Christ and, and Christ's ministry and all the finer points of the doctrines of the faith. There were two people there that heard him preach. That was Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, as they heard him, they realized, well, he doesn't have all the facts yet. Now, he, he's, he, what he has is truth, but he doesn't have the complete picture. And so Aquila and Priscilla took him aside, and they began to show him and explain to him uh, the things, the doctrines of the faith uh, more in detail. And that's the normal method. Now, that's the way that you do it. People that know more than somebody else when it comes to you know, teaching in church, whatever, the people that know more teach the people that need to learn. That's the way it usually goes. 
But that's not what happened with Paul. That's what he's talking about in the first chapter. He had no contact with the apostles. He didn't get any information from Ananias, the one who baptized him. And remember, he said, I I went alone. I went out into the desert of Arabia, and there aren't any teachers there. So we wondered then, how did this person who became the backbone of New Testament teaching and the one who tells us more about church doctrine than any other person, how is this person credible if he had no teachers? Well, he claimed he got the information from God. Well, is that a problem? Paul's an independent soul, so what do we do? Do we put him in the same category as Joseph Smith? I mean, how do you corroborate what Paul says here. How's he going to prove this? Now, on the one hand, he has proved his independence. He says, I can't be taught by anyone but God. So how does he get that corroboration? And that actually became a point for the Judaizers. You see, the independence looks good from one angle. I mean, from his angle and from the way we see it now, it looks good because he can't learn these things. He can't know these things. If he never met anybody, never talked to anybody, God would have to be the one who gave him these doctrines. But for the Judaizers, this becomes an excuse because he hasn't been to Jerusalem. He hasn't talked with the apostles. And so the Judaizers are saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. His doctrine is different from those that are down in Jerusalem. Now, when we talk about Joseph Smith, we don't have any question that what he taught was different from Jesus and the apostles. This is why we, have, we, we deny that Mormons are Christians, because they do not agree with Jesus and the apostles, and they follow these unverified teachings of Joseph Smith. And so what you can never do, you can never get Joseph Smith and Peter, James, and John on the same page. It just isn't going to happen. And the Judaizers say this about Paul. You can't get him on the same page with his gospel You can't get him in the same place that Peter, James, and John are. So we have then the beginning of chapter 2. And Paul uh, says that he had received his information independently from anyone. Well, how does it happen? And how is he going to show them that he is with the apostles down in Jerusalem? Well, amazingly, the same thing that Paul taught was the same thing that they were teaching there. And so to satisfy this false charge that there was a different gospel that he preached, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem to get confirmation of this. And you're going to see this a little bit later. Paul did not think it was necessary for him to go. He, he had his calling from God. He doesn't need anybody to corroborate that calling. God called him to be an apostle. But we'll, we'll notice here a little bit later on as we get into the study that he prayed about this and, and he was showed that he needed, need, really did need to go to Jerusalem to get this thing straightened out. So the apostles, they've been with Christ. Uh, we have full assurance that their doctrine is correct. We have no doubt about that. So if Paul received his doctrine by divine revelation, then it will have to be the same thing that the apostles are teaching in Jerusalem. And another way that we know that Paul did receive that his doctrine directly from the Lord by direct revelation is because there is no way a Jew could teach what he taught without that being the case. Now you think for just a minute how much difficulty that the apostles had when Jesus first started teaching them. I mean, there were so many gaps and so many holes in their understanding that it looked like, I, I, I suppose Jesus was exasperated at times. When are they really going to get this? And so it took a lot of teaching to get the, to get the disciples to come around. For instance, on the, 
on the last night, I mean, we're, we're down to the very end of Jesus' ministry. And, and he's about ready to go be, to be crucified. And in his last discourse with the apostles, he says in John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes on and he talks about how he's going to prepare a place for them in heaven. And he says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you home to be with me. And then he spoke Ricky's favorite verse where he said, and Ricky told me this the other night, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so that, that, that's, Jesus is teaching that. And then Philip says to Jesus, now this is the last, last time he gets to, to preach to them before his death or speak to them. And Philip says, well, Lord, if you'll show us the Father, that will suffice us. In other words, you show us the Father, and then we will be sure that if you go away that you'll come back and you'll take us to be home with you and that you've prepared these mansions and all these things that you say. And that had to be an exasperating moment for Jesus. So he turned to Philip and he said, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Now you see my point here? Paul knew all of this because Paul was a strong Trinitarian. And you know the Jews today still do not believe in the Trinity. That's because there's no one that comes to an understanding of that doctrine truly unless they know Jesus Christ as Savior, unless God opens up their heart to that. That's not a doctrine that you come by naturally. And the other doctrines that the Judaizers disagreed with, I mean, these things that Paul was teaching, there's no way that any Jew is going to come to that and just automatically have this idea Uh, the the ideas that Paul had, the doctrines that he had, and then to have it turn out to be exactly what the apostles in Jerusalem were teaching. That's miraculous. And of course it's miraculous because God spoke directly to the mind of Paul. So that's a proof of his assertion. He didn't get his doctrine from man, but he got it from God. Now we go back to the first verse then. He says, Then fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. So Paul now is prepared to go to Jerusalem. He wants to lay to rest this false charge. Um, The independence that he thought was working for him is now starting to work against him. And so now what he wants to do is to show there is no division between him and the rest of the apostles. And when this confirmation is made, what it will do is to solidify all the churches that there is not a division in the key personalities of Christianity. So the core issue that we're dealing with then is is agreement with the apostles between Paul and the other apostles and this doctrine of justification by faith alone and the, the, the confirmation or the affirmation of Paul's apostleship. But still remember, it's not necessary for Paul to get the confirmation of the apostles. They didn't make him an apostle. Jesus Christ did that to him. So that was the core issue. Now, moving along into the text, that's a long introduction to get us into the purpose of chapter 2. Number 2, the comparison of the timeline. Comparison of the timeline. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. He says, then 14 years after. Now, that's after what we read about in chapter 1, 14 years after this, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. Now, the timeline here is 
one of these areas of debate between scholars. They try to figure out how does this trip that Paul makes to Jerusalem fit into the narrative that we have in the book of Acts. And Luke, Luke records these, uh, these different things in the book of Acts. So how do you fit Galatians chapter 2 into what we learn in the book of Acts? Now, that's what I want to spend the rest of my time with tonight. I don't have too much time left, so we'll, we'll, we'll spend it here because th- this whole thing, what happens in Jerusalem, the conversations that took place there that we find in the book of Acts were very important to this whole issue of justification by faith alone. Do people need to do anything else to be saved? And, of course, the, the argument here was over circumcision, but you can insert in there any, anything else besides faith. So the problem here is does this mean that 14 years after Paul was converted that he went to Jerusalem or 14 years after his first trip there when he had that meet and greet with Peter and James? What's he talking about? Well, chapter 1, uh, verse number 18 tells us there that, that Paul was three years, three years after his conversion, he spent time in Damascus in, in Arabia. Now, what appears to me is that we're talking here about 14 years after his first trip and not 14 years after his conversion. Now, again, what we're trying to do is to figure out how does it fit in Acts? Where, where is this trip in the book of Acts? Well, part of the problem of determining that is it, it, does this mean that this was the only time that Paul was in Jerusalem during that 14 years that he speaks of? Is this the only time that he was there? Or is he speaking specifically about this one trip and there's actually another unrelated trip in between? Well, it seems to me that Acts chapter 2 corresponds with Acts, or rather Galatians 2 corresponds to Acts chapter 15, which means that there must have been another trip to Jerusalem before this. I mean, this is some, some time when Paul went to Jerusalem before all of this stir up of controversy with these Judaizers in Galatia. So when was that first trip? Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 11, if you would, and verse number 27. And this is the story of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they were sent to Jerusalem for a, relief effort, for a relief effort. There were Christians there that were suffering from a famine. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 27, it says, In these days came prophets from Jerusalem and unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth, that's, that's a famine, great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Then if you go down to Acts 12:25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So this was a trip in Acts chapter 11 that took place before Paul made his first missionary journey. This is before the churches are established in Galatia. And there may have been disagreements with Judaizers up until this time. There, there may have been some of those, but it couldn't have been the one that we've been talking about in Galatians 2 because, or, and this trip is not about Galatians 2 because those churches in Galatia had not yet been established. Now, we have a purpose here of this trip in Acts chapter 11. It has nothing to do with the Galatian problem. This is for a famine relief. So we don't have any mention in Acts 11 about the apostles. We don't have any mention of circumcision. 
And Barnabas is more prominent than Paul in that story. And in a couple of weeks when we come back and we look at Paul's traveling companions in Galatians chapter 2 on this Jerusalem trip, we see how this switches where Paul becomes the more prominent one and Barnabas slips into the background. Then some other notes of consideration is that Acts 11 has no bearing on whether Paul had received a supernatural revelation because by this time, Paul had already been teaching for 10 years. And the Judaizers are the ones that raise the problem. That controversy doesn't happen until you get to Acts 13 and 14. Or rather, uh, yes, the establishment of the churches in Acts 13 and 14. So you can't have the, con- uh, the controversy with those people until then. And then we also notice in Galatians 2 verse 1 that Paul went up again. He says, I went up again. And there's nothing in that word again that says it's the second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time. There's no way to determine it by the word again. He just went again. But the most damaging evidence that we have against chapter 11 being this trip to uh, Jerusalem that we have in Galatians 2 is the historical proof of his famine in chapter 11. I mean, we know that from history. And and it occurred about 44 A.D. when uh, around the time of the death of Herod Agrippa I. So you you put all this together, and if you're kind of listening here, I hope to me, you do some elementary to me. You do some elementary subtraction. You take 44 A.D. and you take 14 years off of that. Where do you get? 30 A.D. 30 A.D. Now, if Paul was converted three years before that, that makes 27 A.D. Right? Okay. So let's take for instance that the birth of Christ. You know, now they say the birth of Christ actually happened in 4 B.C. So if his birth happens in 4 B.C. and Paul was converted in 27 A.D., then Paul was converted in the middle of Christ's ministry and not after Christ died. So that's a problem because then Paul, he, he didn't see the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He, he couldn't have been called to his apostleship then. So if, the, if this is Acts chapter 11, then what happens, you've got to throw everything that Paul says in, Acts, in Galatians chapter 1 and 2 out because Paul's not credible. He's lying about the whole thing. And that presents to us a really big problem. But then let's take and let's say, well, no, uh, Jesus was born on the traditional date. And that's the, the dividing line between A.D. and B.C. So now Paul is converted when? three years before Christ began his ministry. Now, now we've got a problem here that, that Paul is actually converted before Jesus is even into the ministry. So we can't use Acts chapter 11. You say, why is all that stuff important? I mean, why are you trying to figure all this out? It just, why do that? Well, we want to know how the Bible fits together, don't we? We want to know how the whole thing works. How, how does this all... Is the Bible consistent? Is the Bible true? All these things are very important. Richard Linsky, the Lutheran scholar, said, the supposition that Paul is speaking of the visit which he and Barnabas paid to Jerusalem to bring relief is chronologically impossible. And so we just see that. Now, we go back to Acts then, and we see what trip did Paul make to Jerusalem that matches Galatians chapter 2. Well, that has to be Acts 15. Now, we're not going to discuss everything that happens in Acts 15. We're going to do that later. As I said, we're going to do an excursus on Acts Acts 15 to what that whole thing was about. But I do want to talk to you just a few minutes and try to hurriedly finish here that there was a council that was held in Jerusalem, and it was over the issue of circumcision. 
Acts 15.1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Sometimes that's called the first church council. And what that implies when people say that's the first church council is that these councils that happen hundreds of years later are in the same vein of authority as this council in Jerusalem. But you ought not to think about it like that because this was not a council of bishops and cardinals and blue jays and turkey vultures and all the other parts of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, that, that, that's impossible. I mean, this, this, what we're talking about here is a simple meeting of the authorities of the original church. And when the apostles died in the first century, there, there are no more apostles and there is no more apostolic succession. There is no authority from the apostles. Nobody's a living apostle. So what happens is the churches begin to function independently. They cooperate, but they're not dependent upon some central bishop in Rome or any place else. Then we also have an identification of Judaizers here. It said, certain men which came down from Judea. Well, is that a problem? You look at Galatia, and you look at Antioch on a map, and then where are they? North of Jerusalem. But this says they came down from Jerusalem. Why? Well, we know the answer to that, don't we? No matter where you're going, what direction from Jerusalem, you're always going up when you go and down when you leave. Jerusalem is always up. When you go away, it's always down. So they came down from Jerusalem, even though they were going north into Galatia and into Antioch. So these Judaizers come uh, from Jerusalem. They're causing trouble, and they say, Gentiles need to be circumcised after the law of Moses, and if they don't, they can't be saved. Well, that's the same controversy we have in Galatians 1 and 2. Now, Acts chapter 11 that we talked about corresponds to, if it corresponds to that, then it means this whole issue of, of uh, circumcision had already been settled. So why would you be arguing Acts 15 about it? Why does it look like a hot-button issue in Acts 15 if it's already been settled? And why does Paul go down to Jerusalem in Acts 15 to discuss this thing again? So it can't be Acts 11. And then in Acts 15, we have this main players are the same. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, same as in Galatians 2. Acts 15, the opposition is the Judaizers, same as Galatians 2. Acts 15, there's agreement of fellowship with Paul and the apostles, same as Galatians 2. Acts 15, you have a commendation for Paul, same thing in Galatians chapter 2. And so the reasonable conclusion is Acts 15 matches Galatians 2. And it gives us this very important historical timeline for the Galatian churches. And it shows us how Luke's historical record of, uh, in the book of Acts all works out. So that, again, tells us, gives us a grip on how the Bible fits together. And just thinking back, uh, my time's gone here, but, but uh, thinking back on this, several years ago we did a study in the book of Acts and probably one of the most profitable studies I think that we've done because that tells about the growth of the church and it tells you when you get to these different letters of Paul and you see the churches that he wrote the letters to, you go back to Acts and you find out where they got started. Why is Paul writing to them? Ephesians, you go back, you read Ephesians, you go back and you find it in Acts. Philippians, you go back and you read what happened with the Philippian jailer. What happened to Lydia? That's recorded in the book of Acts. That happened in Philippi. First and second Timothy, Titus, go back to Acts and you find out where Paul met them and how those men helped Paul in his ministry. First Corinthians, Paul said, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers by whom 
he believed. And you go back to Acts, and what do you do? You find the story of Apollos, the one that I mentioned just a moment ago. You find Aquila and Priscilla there teaching Apollos, and Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians. And I might say this, you know, Apollos is a very interesting guy because you have a Jew with a Roman name who came from Egypt. So you have somebody with a real identity crisis, so he's a good person to study. So I, I, I hope this, this at least is somewhat interesting to you, this part of it. And if you're chomping at the bit to get to the doctrine and you're all crazy about getting to the application of it and you want to see all of that, just know you have to get the authority part also. You have to understand that. And we have to be able to make sense of that authority or what do we have? We have another Joseph Smith on our hands. And we can't afford to have Joseph Smith on our hands when we've got our souls hanging in the balance. So thank God we have an authoritative Bible. God inspired men to write it. We can trust what they have to say. And so when Peter says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, we can trust that. We have the truth of the word of God by which we are saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be here tonight and to teach your word. Though our attempts are feeble, Lord, we just pray that you would bless and uh, help us to understand your word better. And may we serve you better every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.